Well, good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, which means it's Bible study day, and I am so glad that you are here with me. You know, every time I open this Bible study, I always have visions of Good Morning Vietnam. Remember that movie with Robin Williams? And I kind of want to be like, Good morning, St. Michael, but I can't really pull off a Robin Williams. So instead, we'll do Bible study. This morning, we're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 8, and it's a good one. I'm glad you're here with me. Um, because we're only doing a single chapter today, we're going to have a little bit of extra time. And because we're going to have some extra time, I really encourage you to ask some good questions. So get those questions ready. Go ahead and make an ask in the comment field, either on Facebook or YouTube, if you're on either of those platforms. Send those questions in. Meredith is going to get them to me during the study so we can help direct what we do today to be as effective as possible. I will tell you that it doesn't seem like people are necessarily asking questions during the study. Maybe it's because Daniel's just a little opaque. But questions are coming in very well in the week between Bible studies. And we got a lot of questions this week. And so I'm going to start with a few questions. Then we'll get into chapter 8. But I do want to hear from you live today. So as a reminder, if you're on one of our social media platforms, say hi to one another. Let us know you're here. If you're not from Dallas, let us know where you're from. If you're not a St. Michael member, let us know where you worship. We love to create this community of people that goes far beyond our actual church membership. It's a really, really neat thing, especially as we are still being a bit distanced from one another. It's nice to feel connected here, even if it's just digital. That connection is still real. We're going to open with a prayer, and then we'll get rolling. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for bringing us together today. We ask that you open our hearts and minds, calm our hearts and minds, help us to put down anything that we feel that we are carrying, those things that bear weight on our souls. Help us to put those things down and just sit in your hands today. Help us to feel your presence, to feel your love, to be inspired by the word that you have passed down generation to generation to us. May we receive that word, be filled by the Spirit, and transformed to be your hands and feet in the world you love, that through us, people will see your face and believe. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, gang. We are in chapter 8 of Daniel. We have gotten here by, doing, by going through a few different things. First off, Daniel's taken into exile along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're in exile for a whole lifetime. And Daniel has, through fits and starts, received a number of promotions. He's got some place in the palace, place with the kings. And we see stories in the first few chapters of the book of Daniel where Daniel is helping the king in certain ways. And also Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand up for their faith. They're put in trials and they remain faithful to God and their faithfulness delivers them from the danger. Last week, we transitioned. Chapter 7 is where we transition from what we might consider as just stories being told about stuff that happened in the exile. Now we're getting visions. And last week, we looked at Daniel's very first vision. Remember that of the four beasts? It's a little crazy, but it's still helpful. Today, we get a vision of a ram and a goat. And if you've read ahead, you might have thought, what is happening here? The good news is we get the vision and the interpretation in the same chapter. And so we're going to look at both of those in chapter 8. Before we jump into chapter 8, I want to take a look at a few questions that we've received this week because they are really, really excellent. Um, one question has to do with specifically the teaching of Daniel. Um, because I've said a number of things about how Daniel should be interpreted by us today as Christian disciples. I think it's important, um, someone asked, is the teaching of Daniel different than the message of the other major prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Ezekiel? Specifically, they reference the idea of judgment. And I think that's a really, really good question. So 
The prophetic voices that we see in the Bible, separated by major and minor prophets, let's do what this question says. Let's look at the major prophets. Those prophets basically work either within the exile or after the exile. And a few speak before the exile, but really they focus on what the Israelites did wrong. Prophets like Isaiah actually speak over before, during, and after the exile and are likely multiple different people, which is a totally different study. Just don't worry about that I said that. What the major prophets tend to do is call Israel to repent. Call Israel to turn toward God and away from whatever it is that was distracting them. They really want the Israelites, the Jewish people, to remember who God is and who they are in relationship to God and to not fall victim to the pressures and the temptations of the world. That's pretty much the summary of all of the prophets. To that end, Daniel is not really like most of the other prophets because Daniel doesn't speak specifically to a group of people calling them to repent. Yes, there is an idea of repentance in Daniel, but I think what Daniel does best is the visions in the book of Daniel call the Jewish people to a renewed faithfulness and a promise that is grounded in hope. Daniel really takes the people in their worst moments and says, this is not all there's going to be, right? The bad stuff will only last a certain amount of time. And God's promise is deliverance from that bad stuff. So if they're in exile in Babylon, God will deliver them out of Babylon. If they are being oppressed, even when back in Jerusalem, which we're going to get to, God will deliver them from that oppression. Whatever pain and heartbreak and trouble we experience in the world is not going to last forever. That God is with us through the pain and that God will deliver us through that pain. So it's a little bit of a different message. All of the prophets, including Daniel, deal with troubling times, right? Prophets tend to thrive when the world isn't going well. But Daniel does a bit more than just kind of repent and turn to the Lord. Daniel tries to empower and create hopefulness in the people. And we see that in some of the other major prophets. Ezekiel's a good example. You know, when Ezekiel speaks to the dry bones and says, put flesh on these bones and rise up, really what Ezekiel's doing is giving the people hope that what they are experiencing now, that kind of death, the dry bones, um, the absence of God, is only temporary that God really isn't absent and that God will come back and God will deliver. Daniel's all about God's deliverance, which is one of the reasons why Daniel is so popular for the first century Christians. Daniel and, of course, Revelation are popular to those first century Christians because they understand Jesus's identity through the idea of deliverance that it's not just God coming in some random form, but that God came in the person of Jesus in order to deliver us. And that's a really important idea and grounding in, what every, in most of what Daniel does. We had another question about gifts and talents, which I think is very apropos. Here at St. Michael, for those of you who aren't a member of our church, we're focusing this fall on the idea of discipleship and about the idea of gifts and talents and blessings and what we do with those gifts, how we are grateful to God for the gifts that we have received. And so this question is very apropos. Laura says, I spoke about gifts and talents and opportunities coming from God, but how do we account for those less fortunate? And especially for those who are suffering in horrible circumstances, are these people why discipleship is so important? Well, Laura, I think you answered the question, um, but I'll unpack it a little bit more. So, talking about gifts and talents and blessings can very quickly shift into an idea of privilege, right? When life is pretty good, then we can feel very blessed, and we can conflate blessing with comfort and affluence and advantage and privilege, 
right? We have a lovely home and we are very blessed. We drive a great car. We are very blessed. Our entire family has their health. We are blessed. And those of you who've been in Bible study with me for a while now know that one of the things I cannot stand is when people do like hashtag blessed on Instagram or social media where they're doing something sexy. You know, they're at the beach, they're sipping a drink and they're hashtag blessed. That is not at all what God is talking about. When I talk about blessings, gifts, I'm talking about something that goes so much deeper than just comfort or affluence or privilege. I'm talking about what goes so very deep to the core of our humanity, and that is the kind of faith, hope, and love which God wants so desperately for us. Hopefulness is what gives us the spark that can light a flame that can get us out of the darkness. Faithfulness is really how we choose to live, regardless of what happens, right? We see that with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel. When they are faced with a trial that would scare any person, their faithfulness in God rests in God's truth alone, not in their circumstance. They are not faithful to God because they were delivered. They're faithful to God whether God delivers them or not. That kind of deep faithfulness is so sustaining. It helps us resist all the temptations of the world that can lead us astray, including all the creature comforts that can distort and pervert our ideas of blessing. With all of that taken into account, it is easy for us to link blessing to some kind of goodness and comfort. But I think we have to uncouple that idea because if we look at someone who is suffering, perhaps with an illness, and we wonder why they aren't blessed, we have missed the idea of blessing. If we look at someone who is extremely poor and struggling with that poverty, and we think they are not blessed, We've missed the idea of blessing. We, most of us watching this, are very comfortable. We live in security. We have everything we need and way more than what we need. And we need to work harder to uncouple the idea that our comfort, our wealth, our privilege is somehow God's blessing on us. Instead, dig down deeper and identify your core, who you really are, separate from all of the stuff, and know that God has blessed you richly, deeply. Discipleship is actually a choice to live that kind of blessing. Put into kind of literal terms, the best way for us to understand this is through money and stuff, right? We like stuff more than we should. We like money more than we should. And one of the classic calls on a life of a Christian, and really on the call of the life of pretty much every religious group around the world, is to give of the stuff that matters too much to us. Whether that's wealth, money, time, whatever that is, we're called to give of what we value more than the blessings that God has given to our souls. We at St. Michael talk about this kind of giving, both time, talent, and treasure. Money matters because money is the way that we define so much of our earthly life. And by giving enough, by giving more than we think we can, by committing to a life where we actually root our blessing very deeply, allowing us to give beyond what we think we can is actually what helps us in our own discipleship. We, when we give more than we think we can, actually become more and more the disciples Jesus and God hopes that we will be. That kind of discipleship is rooted in the blessing that goes way beyond just what we see, way beyond comfort to something so much more important. Lastly, we have a questions 
about prayer. I got three different questions <laughs> about prayer um, this week, and all the questions revolved around the idea of what prayer does. Um, and I say what prayer does because, I don't want to say this. The questions were all around how do we, why do we pray, and how do we get answers to our prayers? And I think that it speaks to a, an understanding of prayer that is very often rooted in the response, in the answer. And we've, you know, in our culture, I don't think anyone would say, I'm going to pray only if I get something back. However, I do think that we naturally pray in order to achieve a result. And multiple of these questions hit at kind of a real rubber-hits-the-road moment when someone is sick, when someone is dying, when someone is hurt, and we pray for their healing. What happens to those prayers? This is a perennial issue in my Bible studies because I mouth off regularly about my opinion of prayer without unpacking it. And so this is one of those moments where we can all take a minute to unpack I will say my idea of prayer, right? So I will own this. I'm not speaking for some grand theologian or some grand theological idea that stems from some major tradition, although I ground my ideas in those kinds of traditions. But I want us to hold prayer in two different ways. There is prayer that is simply the act of praying. And then there is the answer to that prayer. I want us to hold those separately because it's very important the way that I understand prayer, it's important to hold those two separately. Praying is about going to God with gratitude, going to God with humility, going to God with intercession, and on and on. God wants us to pray. The Bible says over and over again that prayer is critical for us that we should be comfortable with praying, that we should be in the good habit of praying, and that we can pray however and for whatever we want. And if you don't believe that, then go read some psalms. Psalms are split down the middle. Half of the psalms are wonderful, praising God for all these good things and all of the blessings that we've received. And the other half of the psalms is angry railing at God God can handle whatever we want to throw. I need you to hear that. God is not precious. God is not fragile. God is not going to leave us. God wants us and all of us. When we're happy, God wants it. When we're mad, God wants it. When we are broken, God wants it. And when we are hopeful, God wants it. God wants all of us, all of our complexity, and all of our dynamism. So when we pray, the act of praying is really an act that changes us. The actual act of praying changes our habits, changes our belief, changes who we are and transforms us into the kind of faithful, hopeful people that God really wants us to be. Because praying is not connected to the answer. We see that in Daniel multiple times. I've already referenced it once, but when we really look at the stories of the fiery furnace and the lion's den, the prayers of those four young men have nothing to do with God's answer. They pray, and then they let it go. They basically hand over their prayers to God. Now, in those stories... God delivers. But I want us to understand that those stories were written by people trying to maintain faith and inspiration. I think it is dangerous, not wrong, but dangerous for us to encourage people to pray so that they can get a particular response. We all know God's response to our prayers pretty much never look like what we want or expect. 
God's response to our prayers is a lot more focused on us than it is on our actual prayer. I believe that God's response to our prayers happens to us. So when we pray for a loved one to be healed, God's response to that prayer happens within us. Our faithfulness, our strength, our peace is strengthened and deepened because of our praying. I really don't think God will spontaneously heal a loved one because we've said enough prayers or the right prayers in the right way. God's answer to prayer is about our relationship with God. When we pray, we deepen our relationship with God and God responds to that prayer and in a way answers that prayer, but to us because we are shaped and transformed and molded. I've said before in here, and I know I'm going to kind of like drop a bomb in the middle of, the, of, the, of our digital room, God is not invested in us staying alive. That's, that's, a, that's a touchy thing, and plenty of people will disagree with that, but I want you to really think about the biblical story as a whole. God loves us. God created us. God wants for us to follow, but there's really nothing in especially the Gospels that says God doesn't want us to die. Jesus heals people, yes. Jesus raises multiple people, yes. But Jesus also doesn't do that for most people. And I think it's an important idea for us to ponder that much of what scares us around illness and danger and death doesn't scare God. And when we believe that God somehow wants for us not to die, I want us to just ask why. And one answer could be because God loves us and we want not to die. I think that's a very valid way to approach that. For me, this is just me. I think that death is not the end. Death is just the next step. And our faithfulness is in the promise of eternal life, of being with God completely, finding this whole, complete, amazing truth. And why would God want to prevent that? Okay. I hope you can follow me the rest of the study because that's sort of lobbing a bomb in the middle of our room. Um, but just hold on to that. And remember, ask some questions. I want some questions. Um, so feel free to put those in the chat. Um, if you disagree, if you had a different experience, if you want to vet a different idea, do that. Because that's what we're doing together, right? We are learning together here. So as we await some questions or comments... Let's jump in to Daniel chapter 8. And I have more questions. I can't get to everything today, but just keep them coming. I will get to them, I promise. We're going to start in chapter 8 with Daniel's second vision. Today's lesson is really only in two parts. The first is the second vision, and the second is Gabriel's interpretation of that vision. Yep, we get to meet Gabriel here. So Daniel's second vision starts in the third year of King Belshazzar. So as I noted in chapter 7, we almost go back in time. Daniel's kind of come all the way through the Babylonian exile through chapter 6, and then all of a sudden we jump backwards. It's fine. Beginning in chapter 7 and on, Daniel's not really doing a historic study. He's not really kind of marking history in literal experiences. Understand this in a metaphorical sense. So when Daniel jumps back in time, just understand Daniel is still in the exile where he receives these visions. Now we're in the third year of King Belshazzar, and the vision has two animals with multiple horns. Both animals and horns were, will matter. So I'm going to step through each little shift in the first half of chapter 7. So if you've read ahead, great. If you haven't and you're looking at this and wondering what in the world is going on, hang with me. I... I think I can promise this will be pretty clear by the end of class. 
We're going to start in verse 3 with the first of the sort of animal and horn business, the ram with two horns. Turn to chapter 8, verse 3. Daniel is speaking here in first person. I looked up and saw a ram standing beside the river. It had two horns. Both horns were long, but one was longer than the other, and the longer one came up second. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. All beasts were powerless to withstand it, and no one could rescue it from its power. It did as it pleased and became strong. So here we have, we'll pause, here we have the first animal. It's a ram, and the ram has two horns. A shorter horn comes first, and a longer horn comes second. Okay, so we can imagine ram with two horns, a short and a long. Now we'll get to the second animal. Look at verse 5. As I was watching, a male goat appeared from the west, coming across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. The goat had a horn between its eyes. It came toward the ram with the two horns that I had seen standing beside the river, and it ran at it with savage force. I saw it approaching the ram. It was enraged against it and struck the ram, breaking its two horns. The ram did not have power to withstand it. It threw the ram down to the ground and trampled upon it, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from its power. So we begin with a ram, and then we get a goat. And that goat has one powerful horn, and we see that the goat runs at the ram with savage force. Isn't that so graphic? I think it's great. The goat overpowers the ram with that force, and it breaks the ram's two horns, and then it tramples the ram and scatters it. Wow. So the goat has done away with the ram. But we're not done yet, because the goat begins with one horn, but gets four. So let's continue with verse 8. Then the male goat grew exceedingly great, but at the height of its power, the great horn was broken, and in its place there came up four prominent horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, a little one, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. So now the goat has destroyed the ram, and it too loses its single horn, and it is replaced by four smaller horns with a little horn coming out of one of them. One of those horns becomes most important to the vision. So we begin with the ram, shift to the goat, and then we sort of shift to one of the goat's horns, a specific horn. Let's continue with verse 10. That horn grew as high as the host of heaven. It threw down to the earth some of the host and some of the stars and trampled on them. Even against the prince of the host, it acted arrogantly. It took the regular burnt offering away from him and overthrew the place of his sanctuary. Because of wickedness, the host was given over to it together with the regular burnt offering. It cast truth to the ground and kept prospering in what it did. We'll pause. This horn exerts tremendous influence over and acts arrogantly, taking over the offering and overthrowing the sanctuary. All right, this is very, very graphic. This little horn becomes a horrible influence on the earth, overthrowing even the prince of the host. We'll talk about what that means. Let's continue with verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one that spoke, For how long is this vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled? And he answered him, For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. So the influence of the little horn on the beautiful land will come to an end. It's terrible as it's happening, but there's a promise here that it will end at some point. All right. That's really the first part. That's the vision itself. Now we're going to shift into the second part of today's lesson, which is all about the interpretation. And the interpretation takes a bit more time to unpack. If you've got any questions about this first part with the vision, uh, let me know. Say it in the chat. 
know that we'll unpack a few of the details so long as you can remember ram with two horns, goat with one horn, goat with four horns, with one of those horns having a little horn. All very clear as mud, right? <laughs> Let's keep going with the second part of today's lesson, the interpretation. Now, following this amazing vision, Daniel says he tries to understand it all, but he needs to get some help. He doesn't quite get everything. Or before he can understand everything, he has a helper show up. Look at verse 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I tried to understand it. Then someone appeared standing before me, having the appearance of a man. And I heard a voice, a human voice, by the Uli, which is the river, calling, Gabriel, help this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I became frightened and fell prostrate. But he said to me, Understand, O mortal, that the vision is for the time of the end. Now we know Gabriel, right? This is the first time Gabriel shows up in the Bible. So here we introduce Gabriel to the biblical storyline. Gabriel shows up as a messenger from God here to explain what could be misunderstood by Daniel. So this brings up a question of angels in scriptures. I, I am happy to talk about angels. I don't think we have time today, um, but just make a little bookmark. If you're interested in a bit of angel discussion, both in the Bible and in other sacred texts, let me know. Um, but I think for now, that's a little bit more than the scope of today's lessons. We will continue with the vision. I, before we look at the quotes, I want to unpack what Daniel will, I mean, what Gabriel will ultimately say to Daniel about these visions. Let's take the three animal horn combos that I unpacked earlier. Ram, goat with one horn, goat with four horns. Okay, those are the sort of the three parts. Let's unpack them one by one based on Gabriel's interpretation. First, we have the ram with two horns, one shorter than the other. We begin in the third year of King Belshazzar. So we're in the Babylonian Empire. But Daniel gets this vision that a ram is going to come and spread all over, you know, northeast, west, south, I'm sorry, northeast, south, and... What happens is the Babylonians are overtaken by the Persians. The Persian Empire, we know, is made up of two disparate Persian groups, the Medes and the Persians. So in history, we know that the Medes were a Persian group that were ultimately overtaken by another Persian group under the leadership of Cyrus the Great. That unified Persian Empire actually moves out of what is modern-day Iran and moves west into what is modern-day Iraq or the Babylonian Empire, right? So Iran, the Persian Empire moves from Iran, if you can imagine this, west into what is Iraq and Mesopotamia and northern, you know, Syria, that kind of area, overtakes the Babylonians and does so, as Daniel's vision indicates, with the strength of two groups. One group is less strong than the other. That would be the Medes. And the Persians that overtook the Medes, led by Cyrus the Great, ultimately overthrows the Babylonian Empire. This is really important in the history of the Israelite community. We know that Daniel comes from the southern kingdom of Judah. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and all the others were taken out of Judah and brought up into the Babylonian Empire. They were there for a good 70-ish years. When the Persians come under the leadership of Cyrus the Great, the Persians, Cyrus in particular, is not interested in holding the Israelites captive. So the Jewish people who have been captive for 70-odd years are then released, really almost released with the blessing that Cyrus offers to go back and rebuild their kingdom. The first temple built by Solomon was destroyed by the Babylonians. 
Cyrus the Great of Persia sends the Jews back to Israel to rebuild their temple and perhaps even helps to fund the rebuilding of the temple. That's a little less clear. But one way or the other, the Jewish people are now out of Babylonian exile because of Cyrus the Great, because of the Persians. They go back to Jerusalem, begin to rebuild their temple, and we see that in Chronicles and Nehemiah and Ezra and that sort of stuff. So later we can look at that in Scripture. But just know that they go back, they rebuild the temple. And that becomes the second temple, the great temple of Herod. And that's the same temple in which Jesus goes to both teach and sacrifice and draw disciples and all that stuff. That's the second temple that is rebuilt basically at this point in time once the Persians release them back to Jerusalem. So, the Jewish people writing the book of Daniel would have had some gratitude for Cyrus and the Persians. I mean, they're not all bad because they send them home and help them rebuild their culture and their social order. But the return to Jerusalem, although good, doesn't mean that the Jewish people have complete autonomy because they still don't have the strength to resist empires like the Babylonians, like the Persians. They may have a bit of freedom, but the freedom's only granted to them because the Persians aren't interested. That's going to come back and be problematic in a couple hundred years. So let's look at the second animal here. So Ram is Persia. The second animal is a goat. We know that the goat comes charging in from the west. That goat charges the ram with savage force. It strikes the ram, breaking its two horns, and the ram has no power to withstand it, and it throws the ram down on the ground, tramples it, and no one could rescue the ram. The goat represents the incredible force of the Greek armies under the leadership of Alexander the Great. That goat comes from the west, right? So if you imagine geographically, you've got Persia, Mesopotamia, which would today be like Iran, Iraq, Syria, that sort of stuff. And Greece comes from the west through what would have been Turkey and north over Macedonia and just completely destroys the Persian Empire. This happens in the mid-300s. This is all BCE, before Christ, right? This happens in the mid-300s, about 200 years after Cyrus the Great overthrows the Babylonian Empire. So the Israelites are in Babylon. Cyrus comes in, destroys the Babylonian Empire, frees the Israelites to return to Jerusalem. And 200 years later, Alexander the Great comes out of Greece and overthrows the Persians. Does that all make sense? 200 years the Jews have been back in Jerusalem rebuilding their culture, rebuilding the temple, recreating the kind of social order that they lost before the exile. What is interesting about this, and maybe worth a little bit of time, is that remember at the very beginning of this study, I said that the Jewish people in exile asked themselves one big question. How did this happen? And that big question precipitated many other detail questions. Did God let this happen or did God make it happen? Did we do something wrong or was God just simply weak? And if we did something wrong, what should we have been doing that we weren't doing and on and on and on? They wrestled with this idea in exile for 70 years. So when they returned to Jerusalem, they're ready to make some wrongs right. So when they rebuild the temple, they don't just do all the same stuff over again. They've got people like prophets and other leaders, priests and others, who really work to create boundaries around the way people live so that they will not go astray again. It's important for us to understand that moment because over the next hundreds of years, you know, 500 years or so, they develop a very amazing legal structure. 
the Jewish religious legal structure is incredible. And it is meant to help guide people to be the people that God wants them to be. A quick summary of Jesus is that although law is meant for good, it can actually get in the way of doing what God really wants us to do. And some rules may be helpful. Too many rules become binding. And when those rules bind people, they can't experience the pure grace and love of God. The root of this incredible legal structure happens right here in this little period of time after Cyrus releases them and before Alexander the Great kind of takes over the entire empire. So we see that Alexander has come in, sacked the Persians, and taken over everything. Alexander's empire is much bigger than the Persian empire. It wraps all the way down into the Middle East. And so for a couple hundred years, the Israelites have relative autonomy. But then in the mid-300s, when Alexander comes in with the Greek empires, they pretty much lose their autonomy again. But for a time, even though autonomy is technically lost, Alexander and the Greek empire don't really mess with the Jews in a very negative way. They kind of just let them go, do, about, do their business, go about whatever they want. And that happens for a little while. But about 150 years later, a bad emperor comes onto the scene. That brings us to the third phase, the third animal horn combination. So the second animal comes in, the goat, with a single horn. But ultimately, that single horn is broken, and from the head of the goat comes four horns. Effectively, what happens is Alexander the Great is extremely powerful. He spreads the empire very quickly, and then he dies. And once he dies, no one really replaces him as a single powerful ruler. And instead, what had been Alexander's empire is effectively divided up into four regions. There is a region that mimics, basically, the Babylonian empire. So you can think sort of Western Iraq, Syria, and then down into what is today Israel. And it is first controlled by Seleucus I. Now, Seleucus I creates what we know as the Seleucid Empire. And the Seleucid Empire controls that kind of Israel north into Syria, up into northern Iraq, eastern Turkey kind of area. The Seleucid Empire, for a time, is really just a good manager of the old Greek Empire region. But multiple rulers come into power power, and ultimately, about 150 years after the death of Alexander the Great, we get a, Seleuc a Seleucid emperor named Antiochus Epiphanes. Haha! <laughs> this is good stuff. I hope you're making notes. Um, Antiochus Epiphanes literally translates to God manifest. All right? Think Epiphany, Epiphanes, that manifestation, that realization, Antiochus Epiphanes, God manifest. As you might imagine, he thought very highly of himself. Antiochus Epiphanes believed that he was the manifestation of God on earth. So, naturally, if he believed that he was God's manifested on earth, then Antiochus Epiphanes would not have wanted anyone worshiping anyone, any god, but him. So he begins to strip the Jewish people of their autonomy. He doesn't want anyone worshiping any god, and so he removes the capacity to worship in the temple. He wants the Jewish people only to worship him. This sounds very similar to some of the things that happened in the Babylonian exile. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, the Jewish people want to resist Antiochus Epiphanes and his desire, his ego trip, to be worshipped. This does not work out very well for the Jews. They are persecuted, 
and they are persecuted for a period of three and a quarter years. We know this from historic record. Now, isn't it very interesting that at the very end of the vision, we see that the persecution of that little horn, so I'm sorry, I should have made this clear. The goat's single horn, Alexander, is broken up into four, right? Four horns come out of the goat's head, which would be the four regions of the Greek empire as they're divided. But then out of that one horn, we get a little horn. And that little horn stretches up to heaven and all the other stuff. That little horn is Antiochus Epiphanes. In other words, the vision shows that Antiochus Epiphanes is too big for his britches, right? He thinks he is everything. And the Jews under Antiochus Epiphanes feel the weight of the persecution. And they wonder what will happen. Why is this happening again to us? And so the end of the vision says that the persecution will continue for 2,300 evenings and mornings before the sanctuary, the temple, will be returned to the faithful people. So if we take 2,300 mornings and evenings, divide it in half, that's 1,150 days or a little more than three years. About 3.2 years of time that Antiochus Epiphanes will persecute the faithful Jews. Coincidentally, that's about exactly the amount of time that Antiochus' Epiphanes' ban of all other religious practice lasts. And we know that from other historic records. So there's a real nice um, coordination here between the vision and the actual historic accuracy of that religious ban. So now let's get back to Gabriel. So Gabriel's there talking to Daniel, interpreting what Daniel has had as a vision. And Gabriel says this is a vision for the time of the end. Now, if you're thinking, okay, Daniel and Revelation, these apocalyptic books are about revealing something new. And here Gabriel says to Daniel, Gabriel, God's messenger, says to Daniel who received this vision, this vision is about the time of the end, or the end times, or the end of all things. It's very easy to cascade into this idea that somehow Daniel has had a vision of the future. And now we are left to interpret the vision in order to help predict the future. This is the kind of moment, phrase, that gives people all the fuel they need to say that books like Daniel and Revelation predict the end of days, Armageddon, right? This is not really what this means. Gabriel is not really saying to Daniel, this will predict the end of time. Instead, when you dig into this language, Gabriel's really saying this vision predicts the end of a period of time, a chapter in time, not of all things. That's a very important idea for us to understand as we do this Daniel Revelation study. Daniel and Revelation are not, on their own, talking about the end of all things. They are talking about the end of a chapter, the end of a phase of time. They're really talking about a real period in time. Daniel's talking about the real period of time when Antiochus Epiphanes is oppressing the Jewish people. A real period of time in which Rome is oppressing the Christian followers of Jesus. Yes, we can extrapolate the idea of remaining faithful and hopeful even in times of difficulty. But I think it is a step too far for us to see that both Daniel's visions or John's visions in Revelation are predictive where we can actually predict what will happen at some point because of their visions. I'll stop there or else I'll just keep on and on and on. Let's look at what Gabriel actually says about the end of this painful period of oppression. Turn in chapter 8 to verse 23. Gabriel says, At the end of their rule, when the transgressions have reached their full measure, 
A king of bold countenance shall arise, skilled in intrigue. He shall grow strong in power, shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does. He shall destroy the powerful and the people of the holy ones. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind, he shall be great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and shall even rise up against the prince of princes. But he shall be broken, and not by human hands. Whew! That's hot. <laughs> Gabriel there is explaining to Daniel that bad stuff's going to happen, and it's going to be real bad. At the end of their rule, in other words, at the end of the rule of those Greeks, of the Seleucids, of Antiochus Epiphanes, they're going to get as strong as they've ever been. Their transgressions are going to reach their full measure. They will be bold, skilled in intrigue, strong in power. They will cause fearful destruction. They will make deceit prosper, and his mind shall be great. He'll think that he is everything, and yet he shall be broken, and not by human hands. Man, there's some power, there's some strength in that moment. He's effectively saying, you're going to see the worst of the worst in Antiochus Epiphanes, but even the worst of the worst will be broken by God's hands. This, this is powerful for us because we live in a world that can often seem out of control. We live in a world that can often seem too negative and oppressive in the weight of its emotional pain. We live in a world where people claim to know everything and be all-powerful, and they push that power out on other people, and yet we can find hopefulness in this kind of scripture message where God's never too far away where God's hands will ultimately heal what is broken, where God's presence, God's love and grace will make all wrongs right. This is powerful. This is weighty. And for us, I hope it gives us hope. We talked about blessings at the beginning. We are absolutely blessed. But our blessing does not mean that life will be easy and painless and comfortable. What blessing means is that God will never leave us alone, that God will never allow any of us to fall to the evil in the end, that God stays with us, lifts us up, helps provide us hope even in the darkest days and that even death itself will not triumph in the end. That's the story that we inherit. That's the story that causes us to follow. And that's a story that gives me all kinds of good hope. Now, I've seen a few questions come in. And let me see if I can grab one. Oh, ha! Huh. So Stephen asks, where he says, I thought Daniel was a great interpreter. Why does he need help with this dream? That's a great question. So when we look at what scripture says, it's almost as if Gabriel jumps the gun. Um, if you look at verse 15, it says, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I tried to understand it. Then someone appeared. So it's almost as if Daniel wakes up, he knows he's had this vision, he can see this vision in his mind, and he's beginning to work it out. But before he actually has a chance to work out what the vision means, boom, Gabriel shows up. As if God knows that Daniel will need help with this interpretation. Now, the interesting thing here is a question I think we should ask as good Bible scholars. Do we think... God, is that how I want to pose this? Um, most people throughout most of Christian history, 
Jewish history too, I guess, but I'll stick with what I know, Christian history, has interpreted Daniel as predicting what would happen after the exile. In other words, Daniel is in the exile. He is actually physically in Babylon, receives this vision, and he predicts what will happen. Today, most scholars understand that this book, as I've noted before, is constructed over hundreds of years, right? It's oral history, stories told over and over again orally, and not really written down, at least not finished, until about this time, about 150 BCE. That means that the way that this vision is written and the way that Gabriel's interpretation is written is actually written by people who knew what happened. So it's presented as a vision of the future, but we know it was written as a story about what had already happened. So I think that Knowing all of that complexity, Daniel likely doesn't need help. But this is the first vision that is really predictive. I mean, yes, the writing on the wall and that sort of stuff comes into play, but it's a little less specific. This vision is quite specific. And I think that perhaps writers needed something to... God to be present in some way so that the vision almost had more validity. It's not just Daniel thinking something's going to happen, but God's messenger, Gabriel, comes down and tells Daniel, this is the thing that's going to happen. And I think in a sense it, it garnered more weight for those who heard that story as it was being told. Um, one other question about prayer, um, do you believe that it is our faith in prayer that changes things? Um, like prayer changes things. Um, oh, ha, did I say prayer changes things? Um, yes. <sighs> Quick in the last minute or so. The primary benefit of praying is our transformation. Did you hear that? So when we pray, the primary benefit is that we are formed and shaped and changed. And we can see this very clearly. Think of children. When we teach children to pray, we are not, I hope, teaching children to pray for a thing so that then they'll get that thing. I hope that we, when we teach children to pray, we're teaching them to basically put themselves on God's mercy, to put themselves in God's hands, to ask for specific things, absolutely. Ask for the food to be blessed at a dinner table. Ask for their grandmother to be healed who is sick. Ask for their friend to get better when they hurt themselves. Yes, ask all of those things. But I hope when we teach children to pray, we understand that their prayers and their consistent habit of praying should absolutely not be based on whether a result happens that is discernible to us. Because the real point of teaching children to pray is that they become prayerful people, that they become changed and transformed into a way of being that we believe is so very powerful. It's the same way around, say, stewardship with children. Um, we ask that children make a pledge to the church and the work that we do here, not because we need their money. We don't need their money. We want them to create the habit of giving, to understand their strength, that when they contribute to a community and that community commits to one another to do good in the world, that their contribution matters, that their presence matters, that their gifts, that their own abilities, that their own prayers actually make an impact and that they are changed and their community is changed and their world is changed for the good. That seems like a good place to end. I hope that you all have had a good study. I love being with you all every week. It's really one of the highlights of my week.
So I wish you all very well, that the rest of this week is good, that you stay safe and healthy, and that you know God's blessings deep inside. Blessings on you all. Bye.